This is an ABC podcast. It was a truly consultative process of Indigenous Australians. A bipartisan appointed referendum council was set up to advise how first Australians could be best recognised in the constitution. And an historic consensus was reached, spelled out in this one-page document called the Uluru Statement from the Heart. We call for the establishment of a First Nations voice. A First Nations voice to Parliament to be enshrined in the constitution was the centrepiece. The voice to Parliament is seen by Indigenous leaders as the key to self-determination and they want it enshrined in the constitution so it can't be swept away by a political whim or a change in government. Since the referendum in 1967, Australian governments have established elected Indigenous bodies, either by ministerial order or legislation, but none have lasted. Each iteration was eventually abolished or shut down by a subsequent government. In this revision with me, Annabel Quince, why these Indigenous bodies have been so vulnerable to the political vagaries of federal politics. Dr Will Sanders is an Honorary Senior Fellow at the ANU Centre for Aboriginal Economic Policy Research. Before 1967, the Commonwealth was running Aboriginal welfare in the Northern Territory and the states were doing their own thing in each jurisdiction. So it's not until after the 1967 referendum that the Commonwealth starts to develop a national role in Indigenous affairs. And the first step is to set up a little office and a little three-person council, and that's in the late 60s through to the Whitlam years, and the three-member council is a three-white-men council, you might say. So it's not until the Whitlam years that there's any structure for direct representation of Aboriginal interests, and Whitlam sets up a thing called the National Aboriginal Consultative Committee, which is an elected body of 35 Indigenous representatives. Tonight, I want to speak directly to the Aboriginal people of Australia. I want to tell you of a most important election that is taking place tomorrow. All Aboriginal people in Australia are eligible to vote. You will be voting to elect the members of the National Aboriginal Consultative Committee. And in effect, there were two bodies before ADSIC, which was the National Aboriginal Consultative Committee, which, as you said, was set up by Whitlam. It was then abolished by the Liberals, who then set up the National Aboriginal Conference. Conference, yes. And I'm just wondering, how would you describe those two bodies? Were they different? What were their kind of role? So they were advisory to the Minister for Aboriginal Affairs, as it was then called, and... They each had 35 to 40 directly elected Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander representatives from divisions around Australia. So there were 35 to 40 electorates and there were elections. First elections were in 1973. That was for the National Aboriginal Consultative Committee. Then when Fraser came in, they got a guy called Les Hyatt from Sydney University to do a review of the NACC as it had run for the previous four years. And Fraser only modestly reformed it into the National Aboriginal Conference. Australian Aborigines are once again heading for the polls to elect their own advisory council. 
Of course, it's nothing new. They've done it all before. The voters have to be convinced in their own minds about the effectiveness of the new NAC, because many are still disillusioned about what happened last time round. Those two bodies were very similar, and the National Aboriginal Conference then had two sets of elections in 1977 and 1981, and then it was abolished by the Hawke government in 1985, largely because the leadership of the National Aboriginal Conference became very critical of the Hawke government over their back down on national Aboriginal land rights. Well, certainly the NACC and the NAC did their best, their very best, to bring the issues that were affecting our people right throughout the country and who they were elected to represent to the forefront in Canberra. Pat Turner is an Arundel woman from Alice Springs. She was a Commonwealth public servant in the 1970s and was the CEO of ATSIC for four years. But I really think they were treated just as an advisory committee and largely ignored, which was unfortunate. And that's both of those organisations, because one followed the other in trying to, you know, I don't know what the government was trying to do, really. I don't think the government knew, but they were inadequate in the sense that they didn't have any control over the budget. There were also both bodies that were actually dissolved by governments, one by a Labor government and one by a Liberal government. Was yeah. that also partly a problem, that they, that in, in essence each party was just wanting to get rid of whatever the other party had put in place rather than actually trying to work with it? Always the problem. Always the problem. Every new government thinks they've got a solution and every politician thinks they know more about Aborigines than we know ourselves. So it's always a problem. In 1987, the Hawke government announced it would establish an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander commission, ATSIC. But to get the legislation through the parliament, it took two years of consultation and overcoming considerable political opposition. You're still going ahead with ATSIC? No second thoughts? I'm charging ahead with ATSIC and I'll crash through or crash because it will work. It'll involve Aboriginal people and the decisions and programs will work better because it won't be people inflicting things on them. Those days are going to end. When the federal government's controversial new body to administer Aboriginal affairs starts operation next March, it will be headed by Lois O'Donoghue, the current chairwoman of the Aboriginal Development Commission. The new body, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission, has had a difficult birth and if the coalition parties win the next federal election, they've pledged to abolish the commission. The debates were really about how do you connect this structure down to the local and regional level because one of the criticisms of the National Aboriginal Consultative Committee and the National Aboriginal Conference is that with just 35 to 40 single members elected from around the country, a bit like a House of Reps, it was argued that it didn't have very good connections right back down to the regional and local level. So the idea that the designers of ATSIC came up with, which were Lowitcher at first, and then the minister, Jerry Hand, Hawke's second minister for Aboriginal Affairs, and Charlie Perkins, who was by this stage very senior within the Department of Aboriginal Affairs, they came up with the idea of a a commission structure for this new thing called ATSIC, which would be built on regional councils of 
10 to 12 members and then various regional councils coming together would send commissioners up to the national level. So there were, after the big consultations in 88, 89, the original ATSIC ended up with 63 regional councils and there were roughly 800 elected regional councillors around Australia grouped into these 63 councils of 10 to 12 members each. And that was the original structure of ATSIC. It was a whole regional council and then national commissioner structure. The number of ATSIC regional councils was eventually cut back from 63 to 35, but it retained its democratic focus. Michael Dillon is a visiting fellow at the Centre for Aboriginal Economic Policy Research at the ANU. Each region, if you like, there would be an election of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. That election was run by the Electoral Commission. It was a voluntary vote. The definition of Aboriginal person was threefold Aboriginal descent, self-identification and acceptance by the community. And that was built into the ATSIC legislation. Each regional council then was a democratic entity with, I think, around 20 regional councillors. And their responsibilities were to make decisions over a range of funding programs in their regions. These regional councils were grouped into 16 ATSIC zones. Every elected councillor was entitled to vote for one full-time commissioner to sit on the ATSIC board. Alison Anderson was elected as an ATSIC commissioner for the Northern Territory in 1999. You know, Territory had four regional councils, so Darwin, Catherine, Tennant Creek and Alice Springs. And then those groups would get together to elect their commission, and we had two commissioners. So you had the top-end commissioner and the southern commissioner. We were the groups that went to Canberra and met in Canberra as a commission, so like a cabinet, like a government cabinet. And the regional council was the people on the ground coming from remote Aboriginal communities with their priorities for their region. The ATSIC Commission consisted of 17 elected members and a chairperson. It had two main areas of responsibility. The first was to advise the Minister and the Government of the day. Robert Tickner was the Minister for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Affairs from 1990 during both the Hawke and the Keating governments. First of all, because it not only provided advice to the government on proposed legislation, it provided advice to the government on daily decision-making. And that's really important to understand. Decisions of ministers, important new initiatives of government that don't involve legislation, and ATSIC had an ability as part of the structure of government to be able to provide cabinet coordination comments, to have those voices heard pretty much on every major issue coming before the government. It involved a number of innovative elements. One was it amalgamated executive responsibilities in this statutory corporation with representative responsibilities or functions. Secondly, and very importantly, it essentially had the powers of a Department of State which gave it a role in advising their minister on cabinet submissions that came from other departments to cabinet and in advising their minister on policy generally. 
And I'm wondering how successful was it at actually getting ministers and the government of the day to actually listen to Indigenous concerns? Well, it was clearly much more effective with Hawke and Keating because they understood the nature of having Aboriginal people at the negotiating table and influencing government policy, and that made it a much more amicable arrangement, whereas the Howard government, when it was elected, was extremely hostile towards ATSIC. So the Howard period was extraordinarily difficult. So the period I was CEO of ATSIC was from 94 to 98. So I worked for both the Labor government in Canberra and the Howard government. What about more broadly? Did ATSIC foster political relationships within and also outside the Indigenous community? I think it facilitated a lot of intra-Indigenous conversation. There were numerous get-togethers of Indigenous people under the banner of ATSIC. I mean, the the regional councils were, were meeting monthly as groups, and then they would come together in state and territory groupings. And so there was a lot of intra-Indigenous conversations facilitated through the ATSIC structure, not just within regional councils, but between regional councils and zones as well. And then the commission, the national commission structure brought issues up to a sort of national level and gave Indigenous people a voice at at the national level and some of the leaders at the national level had quite a public prominence as Indigenous spokespersons over the years. In terms of the wider community, I think that they were building up those relationships in the wider communities with local governments and, you know, state governments and Because don't forget, a lot of those levels of government have very critical service delivery responsibilities that Aboriginal people needed to have delivered in a way that Aboriginal people wanted them delivered, and Torres Strait Islanders, of course. Government don't have all the answers. We believe we have the answers and that government should listen to us. The second critical aspect of ATSIC's work involved the expenditure of money. ATSIC didn't have a huge budget. It started out with a budget of about $500 million in the early 90s. And by the time it went in 2004, it had a, about a billion-dollar budget, which is not huge money by any stretch of the imagination when you look at the budgets of the big-line departments within government. But it did do some pretty interesting things with its programs. Its two big programs were employment, which was called the Community Development Employment projects scheme, consuming about a third of ATSIC's budget, basically gave grants to Indigenous community organisations to employ community members part-time instead of having them in their communities on the dole. The other big program was a housing and community infrastructure program, and that was particularly focused on what we refer to as discrete Indigenous communities, where there are communities on bits of land that are discrete from other settlements, and they have infrastructure needs, power supplies and water supplies and roads and and the like. And ATSIC had a program which helped those discrete Indigenous communities, of which there's roughly a thousand around the country, with their infrastructure needs and also did housing on those communities and set up a sort of 
Indigenous community housing tenure. We had a very extensive regional office network around Australia. So the regional operations were critical because they served 35 regional councils. But the fact of the matter is that it was the regional councils with the very little discretionary money that they had left to make the decisions were in fact in charge of that budget. And in the main, they used it much better than had it been done by bureaucrats alone because they knew the communities. Now, every region had its regional plan. We had a profile on every Aboriginal community and Torres Strait Islander community in Australia. We knew how many people lived there, what sort of facilities they had, what sort of community infrastructure, what the water, power, sewerage, or other sorts of waste disposal systems existed in every Aboriginal community. We knew who the representatives on the community councils were, and the staff would report their work with these communities and the organisations that were funded to the regional councils at every meeting. And they met about every six weeks. There would be applications for new funding and where the regional council had the ability to fund that, they would consider those applications. If they were more of a national nature, then they would submit them to Canberra with their recommendation for the board to consider. So it worked extremely well. Just on the housing program itself, they were designed by the regional councils themselves. So we knew exactly how Aboriginal people wanted to live. They wanted veranda right around because Aboriginal people live most of the time outside and we have an influx of families coming in for ceremonies or sorry business. So we know that lots of people live in our verandas and stuff like that. So the designs were completely done with the intention of having lots of people coming and occupying that space. Those are the things that ADFIC did. And if you go back into remote Aboriginal communities, you'll still see 15 years later those same houses standing up. When I take friends of mine back and I drive around the country showing them, see this power line here? Just come out of ADFIC and it's going into the wilderness to small ad stations, families of 12, families of 17 or Free, you know, and it's given them the ability to have a refrigerator in the middle of summer, heating in the middle of winter. They can do their washing because they can actually hook up a washing machine. They haven't had anything since, but the population has grown. This wasn't just some coterie of small appointed people meeting in a closed room in Canberra. It was a nationally elected series of regional councils across Australia who then elected the Board of Commissioners to ATSIC, and those regional councils were a fabulous voice for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in local communities and in regional areas. And it meant that they built up a relationship, an advisory relationship with state governments, with local governments, so that when decisions were taken in, for example, northern New South Wales, always, and increasingly, I should say, you had Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with a seat at the table. If there was a regional meeting of government authorities or if there was a meeting of health department people, they'd usually invite along either the ATSIC regional council chairperson or the local commissioner. This is a beautiful thing because it means that the Indigenous voice is being heard. His first press conference in Canberra since the election, and symbolically it was to announce a major shake-up. Citing mounting public concern over accountability in Aboriginal affairs, John Howard announced his government will appoint a special auditor who can veto future ATSIC grants. This is not some kind of 
Trojan horse for changes in funding levels. This has got to do with accountability. From the time when the Howard opposition was opposed to ATSIC, ATSIC confronted a crisis of legitimacy. It, it was never bipartisan. So when the change of government occurred in 1996 and the Howard government came to power, their very first cabinet meeting was directed to how can we abolish ATSIC. The legislation protected ATSIC at the time, and over time the relations between ATSIC and the government waxed and waned. And what was the level of accountability that... Oh, extraordinary. Extraordinary. We felt the full force of administrative law during my term as the CEO, but I can tell you that I was the first and only CEO, I believe, to have an unqualified audit financial audit of our books every single year in the four years. I was the longest serving CEO, the only woman and the only Aboriginal to hold that position in ATSEC. We had the Ombudsman, we had ADJR, we had audits galore, we had a special audit imposed by the Howard government at its second cabinet meeting when it was elected in 96 and cost ATSEC $5 million to engage KPMG to do this massive audit of every Aboriginal organisation we funded to see whether they were a fit and proper organisation to receive funding. I mean, it was just outrageous. They would have abolished ATSEC overnight if they didn't have to repeal the legislation and they didn't have the numbers in the Senate, so they couldn't do it. Today ends Lois O'Donoghue's term as Chair of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission and signals what's likely to be a new era in the country's Indigenous affairs. Later today, the Federal Aboriginal Affairs Minister John Heron is expected to announce Miss O'Donoghue's successor and one of those tipped to replace her is Gachil Jagora. Jagil Jagora did replace Lawitcha O'Donoghue as chair of ATSIC until 1999, when Jeff Clark became the first elected chair. His relationship with the government was complex. Sometimes John Howard and Jeff Clark co-sponsored cricket matches at Marnie Oval here in Canberra and appeared to be on much more accommodating terms. But underneath that, there was always a deep scepticism about ATSIC's legitimacy and its role. So that meant that when missteps occurred, and there were a number of them, the governments then stepped in. Jeff Clark, of course, had some legal issues that came back to him from his past, and as did one of the deputy commissioners. So that's one of the reasons ATSIC sort of fell into a little bit into disrepute, and in the late 90s and early 2000s, it became a bit pushier under this leadership. Aboriginal politics are notoriously fractured, and the reaction to rape allegations published about Jeff Clark has illustrated that perfectly. Despite the ATSIC chairman's stringent denial, there are now growing calls within the Aboriginal community for him to stand aside until his name is cleared. Unfortunately, people who were in the news and who had allegations against them, really, in the best interest of ATSEC, they should have said, oh, we'll stand down until this matter is sorted out in the best interest of organisation. That would have been the advice that I would have given, but I wasn't the CEO at the time. But it was very unfortunate that didn't happen because if those personalities had removed themselves because of the public spotlight that was on them and the political powers that were gunning for them, that would have softened the situation somewhat and ATSIC should have been able to handle its work much more smoothly. 
but instead it became focused on the then chair and, and other commissioners who were perhaps losing their credibility or definitely losing their credibility being targeted. What happened was that the then chair of ATSIC essentially lost the confidence of the government and arguably the wider community. That led, of course, to increased pressure for the abolition of ATSIC by people who you know, were already pretty much favourably disposed to that scenario. But I just make the point that whoever is in those positions, whatever part of the structures of government or advisory bodies, the question we really need to ask is, is there anything wrong with the actual institution, the design of the body? Just because you get a, an Eddie Bead in the New South Wales Parliament doesn't mean you abolish state parliament or if you get bad behaviour in local government, it doesn't mean you wipe out local government around the country. We really should be making these judgments based on the, the value and quality of the institution. Some time ago, the federal government commissioned a three-person panel of consultants to review ATSIC, its governance, its structure, its finances and its personnel. And it was chaired by the head of Reconciliation Australia, Jackie Huggins. People, even Indigenous people, have been saying to us that you know, it's time for change. And I would say that the ATSIC elected representatives also acknowledge that. And I think it's certainly salvageable and certainly we don't believe that ATSIC should be abolished. And that, of course, led to a fairly big review of ATSIC in 2003, appointed by the Howard government. They came out very much in favour of keeping ATSIC and restructuring it a little bit. But they were very supportive of the general ATSIC role and approach, but that's not how it worked out. The opposition leader, Mark Latham, has announced that a Labor government would abolish ATSIC, ATSIC is no longer capable of addressing endemic problems in Indigenous communities. It has lost the confidence of much of its own constituency and the wider community. Mind you, Mark Latham wasn't any better. He went to the Northern Territory as the Labor leader and said, when I get into government, I'll abolish ATSIC. And three weeks later, John Howard did. Talk about Tweedledum and Tweedledee between Liberal and Labor. I think there's a trend in Indigenous affairs where instead of reforming, improving addressing shortcomings in terms of our institutional frameworks, governments have tended to sweep the past aside and start afresh from the ground up. And ATSIC is just another example of that. And so the implication has been that Aboriginal people have not had the innovative entity and structure that, that ATSIC was to influence public policies and political debate generally. It has meant that Aboriginal voices, if you like, have been constrained there are, of course, peak bodies and advocacy groups in the Indigenous space, and there have been formal advisory bodies of one sort or another. They're appointed by the government, and we don't know what they say to the government. So I think there's been a, a diminution or a shrinking of the Indigenous voice, particularly on public policy issues. Since the 1970s, three bodies, ADSIC being the one that lasted the longest, yes. each of them gotten rid of with a stroke of a pen or a change of a government. Yes. Yes. What does it tell us about any kind of organisation, Indigenous organisation, that may be able to be put in place in the future? Well, it's taught Indigenous people that you can't rely on administrative fiat or legislation or ordinary legislation as the basis of your national Indigenous representative body, the first to the National Aboriginal Consultative Committee and the National Aboriginal Conference were 
just done by ministerial order, and then ATSIC was done by legislation. And so Indigenous people now know from better historical experience that if things that are set up in that way can be got rid of in that way too. So that's partly why people have said we want this new voice that we're proposing to be constitutionally enshrined because they realise that even being legislatively enshrined doesn't stop the legislation being overturned. Will Sanders, Senior Fellow at the ANU Centre for Aboriginal Economic Policy Research. My other guests, Pat Turner, the former CEO of ATSIC. Alison Anderson, former ATSIC Commissioner. Robert Tickner, former Minister for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Affairs. And Michael Dillon, Visiting Fellow also from the Centre for Aboriginal Economic Policy Research at the ANU. The sound engineer is Isabella Tropiano. I'm Annabelle Quince, and this is Rear Vision on RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.